The door of Henry's lunch counter opened and two men came in. They sat down at the counter. What's yours, George Jackson? The voice of Lee Harvey Oswald from his time in Minsk. A Soviet friend, Ernst Titovitz, was studying English and wanted Oswald to read various literature so Titovitz could study Oswald's southern accent. He played those tapes decades later for the PBS program Frontline. I gave him rather chance pieces to read, and those happened to be, well, Shakespeare from Othello, Ernest Hemingway. The two men at the counter of the menu. The two also ad-libbed their own dialogue, and at one point, Oswald played the role of a killer. Will you tell us about your last killer killing? Well, it was a young girl under a bridge. She came in carrying a loaf of bread, and I just cut her throat from ear to ear. What for? Well, I wanted the loaf of bread, of course. Well, okay. And what do you think, what do you take to be your most, uh, your most uh, famous killing in your life? Well, the time, time I killed the eight men on the Bowery, the sidewalk there, they were just standing there loafing around. I didn't like their faces, so I just shot them all with a machine gun. It, it was very, very uh, famous. It, all the newspapers carried the story. So, <laughs> we're just having a great time, and actually we're laughing our heads off. Funny at the time, though today, hearing Oswald talking about killing people, shooting them down in cold blood, takes on a more ominous tone. I'm Paul Brandish. You're listening to Countdown to Dallas, a podcast series based on my book of the same title. By 1961, Oswald had Long ceased to be an object of fascination in Minsk. His co-workers at the Gorizont radio factory increasingly shunned him, and a woman he had proposed to turned him down cold. By now, Oswald had been offered the chance to get Soviet citizenship, something he dreamed of when he first defected back in 1959. But now he said no. In fact, he even wrote to the American embassy in Moscow saying he wanted to return to the United States. This was a stunning turnabout. You'll recall that when he defected, Oswald wrote his own family back in Texas saying he planned to live in the Soviet Union forever. He hated America and its capitalist system and said that in wartime, if necessary, he would kill any American. But now he wanted to return. The American diplomat that an arrogant Oswald encountered in 1959 was Richard Snyder. On Frontline, decades later, he recalled that first unpleasant meeting. He put a piece of paper on my desk. It said, I have come to revoke my American citizenship. I have applied for Soviet citizenship. He also volunteered the information that he'd been, while in the Marines, he'd been a, uh, a radar technician. And uh, that... When he became a Soviet citizen, he, in, he intended to offer uh, to the Soviet authorities everything that he had learned. In 1961, Snyder was still posted in Moscow. Responding to Oswald's letter requesting help returning to America, he wrote back, telling Oswald to come to the embassy so they could discuss it. I'll tell that story in just a moment. But first, 
Why did Oswald want to leave? Wasn't the Soviet Union paradise like he thought? It didn't take long for him to learn that it was not. Oswald was also just bored. His life was a banal and unfulfilling existence. He wrote in his diary that there was nothing to do. Quote, no nightclubs or bowling alleys, no places of recreation except the trade union dances. I have had enough, unquote. In our last episode, I mentioned how crushed Oswald had been when his marriage proposal to Ella German was rejected, but he continued to play the field. At a violin concerto, he met another woman in a Markova. She would sometimes visit him at his apartment. Decades later, she spoke through an interpreter to Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty. I can't say he was easy to communicate with. He didn't evoke any feelings that would leave an impression. Sometimes you meet someone and think, goodness, what a pleasure. I don't remember having that feeling with him. Markova and her girlfriends remembered this about Oswald. The girls and I often wondered why he had left America. He could have studied there, worked there, but he cut all his ties. Everybody thought he was odd, like he had crossed some line. But Markova also recalled something else. Once I saw anger in him. Someone said something he didn't like, and he became so angry that his face even contorted. He probably tried to conceal his emotions, but they jumped out. He controlled them to some degree, but every now and then they jumped out. This dovetails with what we established in our earlier episodes, that during his childhood and teenage years in America, Oswald had anger issues and could suddenly explode. Then, on March 17th, at a dance hall at the Minsk Dovoryets Kultura, the Palace of Culture, he was introduced to another young woman, Marina Nikolaevna Porosakova. She was 19, he was 21. Their matchmaker, Yuri Merizhinsky, recalled that March 17th, 1961 moment for Frontline. She was a very attractive lady. She dressed well. We went up to her with Lee Harvey Oswald, and he said straight away that he would like to get to know her. At a February 1964 news conference, Marina was asked about her first impressions of Oswald. Her English wasn't so great. Miss Oswald, when you met your husband in Russia before your marriage, did you consider him a just an ordinary American or a different type of person? No, he was an American man, and he was interested for me, you know. But he was normal, and he changed character here. He was normal there and changed character when yes. he came back to the United States? Yes. Do you know what caused him to make that change, caused him to change? I don't know why. He was normal in the Soviet Union, she said, but his character changed when he was back in the United States. We'll go deeper into this down the road. Anyway, in prior episodes, I mentioned that Oswald seemed to fall in love with women at first sight. He fell pretty quickly for Marina, writing, quote, we like each other right away, unquote. Here's another diary entry a few weeks later. Quote, we are going steady and I decide I must have her. She puts me off, so on April 15th, I propose. She accepts, unquote. They were married just two weeks later. So, from meeting in a dingy dance hall to exchanging marriage vows in just six weeks, 
You'll also recall that in a prior episode, we established that one of Oswald's lifelong baseline behaviors was dishonesty. It was on display again on his own wedding day. This story comes from Priscilla Johnson McMillan, who interviewed Oswald in 1959 and spent months with Marina in 1964 after President Kennedy's assassination. As they filled out their marriage documents, Marina noticed that Oswald had written that he was born in 1939 and was thus 21 years old. You're only 21, Marina asked. Why did you tell me you were 24? I was afraid you wouldn't take me seriously, Oswald replied, admitting that he had started off their marriage by lying about a major matter. There was more. Marina also soon found out that Oswald's mom, Marguerite, was alive and kicking back in America. Lee had told her that his mom was dead and that he was an orphan. He also told her that he had no interest in returning to the United States. But, based on his own diary entries and renewed correspondence with the American Embassy in Moscow, this was obviously a lie as well. As we'll see in future episodes, Oswald's habitual dishonesty would make itself evident time and again, right up to the very end. Priscilla Johnson McMillan would later write that Oswald's, and I'll quote, sense of reality appears to have been so badly impaired that the line between truth and falsehood was wavy, and falsehood was often truer than truth. He lied pointlessly to no purpose and all the time, even when he had nothing to hide. Again, this baseline behavior, foundational and lifelong for Oswald, is often downplayed, if not outright ignored, by many conspiracy buffs. The assault has begun on the dictatorship of Fidel Castro. Cuban army pilots opened the first phase of organized... Meantime, an event 5,700 miles away that would influence Oswald, a botched operation to overthrow the communist government in Cuba, the fiasco known ever since as the Bay of Pigs invasion. It was planned during the Eisenhower era, but given final approval by President Kennedy, who spoke after the invasion collapsed. I have emphasized before that this was a struggle of Cuban patriots against a Cuban dictator. While we could not be expected to hide our sympathies, we made it repeatedly clear that the armed forces of this country would not intervene in any way. Cuba and its role in the broader Cold War struggle with the Soviet Union would remain a thorn in Kennedy's side for the rest of his presidency. JFK and his brother Robert, the Attorney General, would employ conflicting strategies with regard to Cuba, working to oust Castro or kill him, while also communicating with him through back channels to dial back tensions. And Cuba, as we'll see, would emerge as a dream destination for Lee Harvey Oswald, who by 1961 had soured on the Soviet Union after barely more than a year. I'll return to Oswald in a moment. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation welcomes viewers in the United States for this special telecast from the Parliament buildings in Ottawa. President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy have just arrived. But I also wanted to mention that the spring of 1961 saw something happen to President Kennedy that may have contributed to the still far-off events in Dallas. 
During a visit to Canada, he participated in the ceremonial planting of a tree and re-injured his back. Kennedy had lifelong problems with his back. A dangerous spinal operation nearly killed him years before. To cope with his back pain, the president wore a back brace. It helped and also helped him sit up straight, like, for example, when sitting in the back seat of his limo. Speaking of presidential limos, by the way, in June 1961, the Secret Service got a new car for the president, a midnight blue Lincoln Continental. Among its features was a hydraulic rear seat that could be raised 10 and a half inches so the president could be better seen. There were also two extra seats called jump seats for guests. Some folks often think that whoever was sitting in front of the president was sitting directly in front. In fact, whoever was sitting in front was actually nearly a foot to his left. This would help explain, after the assassination, how Kennedy and Texas Governor John Connolly could be hit by the same bullet. There was also something else about the car, which today is on display at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan. Here is museum curator Matt Anderson on CBS. The car as Kennedy knew it was not armored in, in any way, shape, or form. The, the tires were not bulletproof. There was no bulletproof glass. It did have a removable plastic top, but again, it was just plexiglass. There was no, no bullet resistance in that material. It, it's amazing to think of it, but uh, they just didn't anticipate that kind of problem. We'll discuss this down the road when we examine presidential security in that very different era. We'll be right back. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. Welcome back. Let's return to Minsk now, where the newly married Oswald is settling into life with Marina, but also taking steps to return to America. At first, he had thought the Soviet Union was paradise, but after just a year and a half, figured out otherwise, he wanted out. But now Oswald had a complication, a Soviet wife. I mentioned that Lee originally lied to Marina about not wanting to go home. He now fessed up and said he did. According to Marina, he begged her for three days to join him. One more winter in Russia and I'm going to die, he said. In July, Oswald flew to Moscow and showed up at the American embassy, encountering Richard Snyder, the same diplomat he met in October 1959, when he declared his intention to revoke his American citizenship. But now Oswald had been humbled. In a State Department cable, Snyder said that Oswald admitted that he had, quote, 
learned a hard lesson the hard way, and that he had been completely relieved of his illusions about the Soviet Union, unquote. But Oswald's habitual lying would resurface in his dealings with Snyder. Oswald said that at no time had he ever asked for Soviet citizenship. This was a lie. He had done so the very day he arrived on October 16, 1959, though he never formally applied. Oswald also told Snyder that he had never been interrogated by Soviet officials about his background. This was also a lie. Oswald also claimed that in a Radio Moscow interview that he said nothing that would harm American interests. Yet Oswald himself would write in his own diary that in giving the interview, he had, quote, sold himself, unquote, and betrayed American interests. Decades later, Snyder would be asked why he helped Oswald leave. The diplomat noted that Oswald was still an American citizen. It was his right to return home if he wished to do so. Meanwhile, back in Minsk, constant monitoring of Oswald's flat revealed that the marriage between Lee and Marina still knew was already rocky. Numerous transcripts showed steady bickering about petty matters, cooking, cleaning, for example, with Marina saying, go to hell, and Oswald telling her to get out. At one point, Marina asks, quote, Alka, that was her nickname for him, do you hate me when you yell at me? To which Oswald said, Yes. Here again we see the baseline behaviors of Oswald that we've discussed before. The resentment, the anger, the expressions of hatred. His rickety new marriage would soon turn violent. But in the end, after these sudden explosions, Lee would always seek to reconcile with Marina, often begging her to forgive him. As we'll see down the road, the most famous example of this dynamic would occur on the night before President Kennedy's assassination. There's also something else about Oswald that most folks don't know. I've mentioned before that he enjoyed classical music. In Minsk, he discovered an opera, Tchaikovsky's Queen of Spades. He also saw the movie version several times and had the album soundtrack. Marina would later tell Priscilla Johnson McMillan that Oswald listened to this record constantly, sometimes 20 times a night. Why? What was it about the Queen of Spades that affected Oswald so powerfully, so deeply? It seems the protagonist was a character named Prince Yuletsky, who was in love with a woman and determined to prove it. Perhaps this resonated with Oswald, particularly after he married Marina, and perhaps even more so as their shaky and often volatile marriage crumbled. Yavas Lyublu, Yeletsky sings, I love you beyond measure. I cannot live without you. I am ready to do anything for you. He repeats, I'll do anything for you. But I see clearly now where my dreams have led me how little you trust me, how distant I feel to you, and how this distance torments me. I love you beyond measure. I cannot live without you. I'll do anything for you. We'll soon revisit the significance of this, the significance of these words, which had such a 
powerful influence on Oswald. Back in the United States, meantime, the federal bureaucracy, big and often cumbersome, made two decisions concerning Oswald. In August, the Marine Corps, learning of Oswald's defection to the Soviet Union, decided to change his discharge from honorable to undesirable. Separately, the State Department, knowing of Oswald's desire to return to the United States, determined that he could do so. But Oswald, who admitted hating America and what it stood for, would have preferred to go somewhere else, Cuba. Castro convinced the Cuban people he was their liberator and they freely gave him the reins of government, a free hand that he betrayed when he announced he was a Marxist, dedicated to making the island a communist state. That's where Oswald really wanted to go. He took Marina to a movie about Fidel Castro and called him a hero. Oswald was so desperate to get to Cuba that in 1963, he cooked up a plot to hijack a plane to fly there from America. I'll tell that often overlooked story in a future episode. In December, the Oswalds got the news they wanted. The Soviet authorities had approved their exit visas. In the Soviet Union, a police state, you just couldn't leave the country. You needed permission. Let's flip a page on the calendar now and bring our narrative to 1962. We know that Oswald hated capitalism, but that never stopped him from asking his family back in Texas to send money. And now that he knew he and Marina would soon be leaving the Soviet Union, he wrote to the Red Cross and through it, the International Rescue Committee, asking them for money, $800 to pay for his travels. Three weeks later, the anti-capitalist wrote again, asking for an even bigger handout, $1,000. Mr. Vice President, my old colleague from Massachusetts and your new speaker, John McCormick, Meanwhile, back in the United States, President Kennedy gave his State of the Union address. Let's focus on this for a second and for two reasons. First, conspiracy buffs often say that one reason Kennedy was assassinated is because he was soft on national defense. A broader perspective might be useful here. When Kennedy entered office in January 1961, the U.S. defense budget had been declining, President Dwight Eisenhower, the five-star general and D-Day commander, had presided over defense cuts of about 6% between 1958 and 1960, for example. One of the first things Kennedy did when he entered office in January 1961 was to sharply reverse those Eisenhower cuts. Here's an excerpt from that 1962 State of the Union. In the past 12 months, our military posture has steadily improved. We increased the previous defense budget by 15%, not in the expectation of war, but for the preservation of peace. We more than doubled our acquisition rate of Polaris submarines. We doubled the production capacity for Minuteman missiles and increased by 50% the number of manned bombers standing ready on a 15-minute alert. This year, the combined force levels planned under our new defense budget including nearly 300 additional Polaris and Minuteman missiles, have been precisely calculated to ensure the continuing strength of our nuclear deterrent. 
So for those who say Kennedy was soft on national defense, it's reasonable to ask why the huge increases in defense spending, submarines, missiles, and all the rest. The other observation here is that some conspiracy buffs have long said that Kennedy was killed because he did not want the U.S. to get dragged into Vietnam. And yet the most prominent military men in the country agreed. Eisenhower, who quickly negotiated a truce in Korea after he became president, refused to get involved in Vietnam, turning his back on the French after they were routed by communist forces in 1954. Then there was Douglas MacArthur, the five-star general who commanded American forces in the Pacific during World War II, presided over the occupation of Japan, and the first part of the Korean War. MacArthur and Kennedy met several times in 1961. You just heard a portion of a rarely heard recording of them together. In a prior meeting, MacArthur told Kennedy, in a quote reported at the time, that, quote, anyone wanting to commit ground troops to Asia should have his head examined. So Eisenhower and MacArthur, both of these five-star generals, the most prominent American military commanders of the 20th century, both knew better than to get sucked into a land war in Asia. So it's not like Kennedy was some sort of outlier. He shared the caution of those great wartime commanders. Anyway, back to Minsk, where Oswald learned via a letter from his mother that his discharge from the Marines had been changed from honorable to undesirable. This upset him. Now remember, one of the baseline characteristics that Oswald always had was his belief that he was always the victim. Although he was a defector to the Soviet Union, Oswald did not understand that he had done anything wrong. He decided to appeal by writing to the Secretary of the Navy. Now, here's an interesting twist. Oswald thought the Navy secretary was John Connolly. But by January 1962, Connolly had resigned to run for governor of Texas. But the letter somehow got to Connolly anyway. He wrote back to Oswald, saying he had forwarded his letter to the new Navy secretary, Fred Corth. Oswald's discharge status would never be changed. Oswald merely had another setback. While the State Department had said it would be okay for him to return to America, the Immigration and Naturalization Service said not so fast. The INS objected, saying that Oswald's loyalty to the United States was in question. But this was overruled by state, even though its records on Oswald show that he was considered, quote, an unstable character whose actions are entirely unpredictable, unquote. Yet the State Department saw no legal reason to keep Oswald, who was, after all, still an American citizen, from returning and taking Marina with him. While all this was going on, Oswald became a father. On February 15th, Marina gave birth to a daughter. They named her June. But at one point, Marina told Oswald that she did not want to leave Minsk and said she and June would remain behind. Oswald's reaction to this was a bit of foreshadowing of events in Texas that were now just a mere year and a half away. According to Priscilla Johnson McMillan, author of the highly recommended book, Marina and Lee, Oswald broke down in tears. What have I to live for? He cried. What am I to do now? 
Seeing her husband's emotional distress, Marina changed her mind. At this point, things moved quickly for the Oswalds. Marina quit her job at a pharmacy. Oswald quit his job, the dead-end factory job he hated. Oswald's bosses, who by now considered him lazy, unproductive, and a social outcast, shed no tears at his departure. Meanwhile, back in Texas, FBI agent John Fain, who had opened a file on Oswald after his 1959 defection, learned from Oswald's family that Lee, Marina, and June were about to come to America. We'll hear much more on this in our next episode. On June 1st, 1962, the Oswalds boarded a train in Moscow and headed west. The next day, they would cross the Polish border. After 32 months in the Soviet Union, Lee Harvey Oswald, with the wife and baby in tow, was on his way to America and an uncertain future. If you like this podcast, check out my book of the same title, Countdown to Dallas. Sound from Radio Free Europe, Radio Free Liberty, British Path Archives, the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library, Universal International News, Movie Tone News, CBS, the University of Virginia's Miller Center, and the PBS program, Frontline. I highly recommend its 1993 episode titled, Who Was Lee Harvey Oswald? Our editor and producer, Aaron Land. Audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. Executive producers, Michael DeAloya and Gerardo Orlando. And I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks so much for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.